Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Amy, and I'm one of the pastors here. And we heard in that psalm about how God is an all-consuming fire, which is an image we'll return to in a minute. But this week, we actually had an image of that in our news and in our skies. Does anyone tell me what I'm referring to? Yeah, the wildfires. And I'm curious, show of hands, did the wildfires keep anyone from going outside this week? Yeah, did any kids have to stay in from recess this week? Yeah. So I want to invite our kids, uh, just as we get started, to pray for those wildfires, for the firefighters and the foresters, for the recovery of the woods that have been destroyed, for our clean air. And while I'm preaching, if you want to draw or write a prayer like that or draw what you hope will be restored, um, I would invite you to do that. But even though these out-of-control fires are not good for our world, and that was really clear to any of us that were coughing throughout this week, we do know that fire has a natural place in the world. It has a natural place in the ecosystems of our forests, of our soil. And when fire is not out of control, when it happens naturally and in the right conditions, it's actually necessary. Fire is the only way some seeds get released it's the only way that that accumulated brush can burn off so that it doesn't turn into this big, out-of-control fire that kind of overtakes our world. And fire, like we heard in the psalm, is this image that comes to us a lot in Scripture. It describes that purifying work of God and His people. It's what God uses to burn the sacrifices they make. It's what God uses to burn off the accumulated brush in our own lives. It's what he uses to kindle a fire of love in us. And a few weeks ago, we reflected on that. Some of you might recognize these. Kim, who made these, is here with us this morning. But uh, a few weeks ago was what church holiday? Pentecost, that's right. And so we had these flames hanging from our wreaths. We wore red, we had red, we heard from children. We did all the Pentecosty things. I'm going to put this behind me. And those red streamers and the color red remind us of the day of Pentecost when flames rested on the heads of disciples and they spoke in different languages and the Holy Spirit came upon God's people and the church was born. And we have this tradition here at Incarnation on Pentecost that we don't preach a sermon. We do a little time of reflecting on the text and then we open up the microphone and we invite people to come forward and to share. We listen and respond to the Spirit together. And I'm still reflecting on what was shared that day, and as I thought about our texts for this week, and as I contemplated this sermon, and as I prayed, I thought it might be worth reminding us a bit of what was shared as we carry what the Spirit spoke during Pentecost into this ordinary time of the church year. So you might remember that Grant talked for a few minutes about that Asbury revival that broke out in Kentucky earlier this year, this revival that seemed to be sparked by this move of quiet and gentle repentance among college students. And Grant asked, why not here? Why not us? And those are questions I'm still asking and praying. 
And then in very different ways, Tom and Tammy and Eva Elizabeth, they all invited us to open our eyes and to see as God sees, to allow God to help us see, to see people the way he sees them, to see things that make us uncomfortable in a new light, to see and be challenged and have our eyes open. And Nicole shared this passage from Acts 2. We saw this glimpse of the early church and this community of self-giving love, of laying down power and laying down goods and serving one another. And it reminded us of the many ways we fail to meet that standard. It reminded us of all the scandals and all the failures in the church. I normally print my sermons single-sided, so I keep forgetting I have words on the other side. Anyway, uh, all of those were really different things that were shared, and yet there were these common threads. There was this spirit of humility and this spirit of repentance, this call to ourselves and to the church more broadly to humble ourselves before God, this longing to see and to listen and to be shaped and formed as God's people. And beyond even the words that were shared on Pentecost, there was just I thought this remarkable stillness and quietness and gentleness this year. Sometimes Pentecost in the past has been very boisterous, but this year it was very still. And Pentecost ushers in the season of the church that we call ordinary time. And even though it does remind us of ordinary things, the word ordinary just comes from ordinal. Like it's the time where we number our Sundays because they aren't all about Lent or Advent or directing us towards something like that. It's the longest stretch in our church calendar, and it stretches all the way to the start of Advent. And it's a season where our readings and our prayers highlight the work of the Spirit in the church. We see the church growing and maturing and going out in mission, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And for that reason, we also often call it growing time, and that's why we wear green. And so as we enter into ordinary time, and as we get into our scriptures, I have been pondering what might grow in us in this growing season And the wildfires this week reminded me that there are seeds that are only released by fire. So I'm wondering, and I invite you to wonder with me, what seeds might have been released in the fires of Pentecost? What does the Holy Spirit want to release and germinate and do in us? I'm praying for seeds of repentance, seeds of looking and listening for God, seeds of renewal, I'm praying that we would listen. And those seeds of repentance are actually a common story in Scripture. We hear that story in the readings from Hosea and from Matthew today. Both of those texts describe religious people who have gotten it wrong and who have missed the point. But from Hosea and to Matthew and everywhere before and after and in between, God never abandons his wayward people. He never just drops them off because they get it wrong. God is always loving his people with this unyielding, steadfast love that is most often translated as mercy. He goes after them whether they deserve it or not, and he loves them back to himself in his mercy. And one of the main ways that we see in Scripture God extending this mercy and showing himself merciful is through the prophets. He sends prophets to remind people 
who he is and who they are and to return them to him. It's a bit like a flame that goes out to release the seeds of repentance and renewal and new growth. And in today's text from Hosea, God says, I have hewn you by the prophets. Hewn, H-E-W-N. It's not a word we use a lot, but it's a woodworking or a stoneworking word. It means to shape something by chopping at it or slicing at it. So you might have seen tunnels hewn into giant sequoias in Northern California, or you might have seen faces hewn into stone, like on Easter Island or Mount Rushmore, and that's the idea. God hews his people so that his spirit can tunnel and move through us, so that his face can be seen in us. But hewing is chopping and cutting. It's not a gentle motion. And the next few sentences in Hosea make that clear. He says, I've hewn you by the prophets. I have killed you by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. Or I love the way the message translation says it. That's why I use prophets, to shake you to attention, why my words cut you to the quick, to wake you up to my judgment blazing like light. God speaks through his prophets like this blunt instrument, like chisel on stone or axe on wood. He uses his prophets to cut people and to cut us to the quick, to wake us up, to put things to death in us that never should have been given life. Things like worshiping idols and abusing power and exploiting the most vulnerable. Things like greed and self-righteousness and pride. He wants to hew those away. And there is one refrain that gets repeated again and again in the prophet's hewing. We hear it in today's text from Hosea in verse 6, but we hear it in some form in Jeremiah and Isaiah and Samuel and Amos and Micah. Again and again, God tells his wayward people, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. So what does that mean? Well, sacrifice is a reference to the system of religious sacrifices, the whole system of religious rituals that God himself set up for his people, what they do to cleanse themselves and to be reminded and renewed of God's mercy toward them, to remember God's acts on their behalf, that when they were oppressed in Egypt, God delivered them, when they were starving in the desert, God fed them, when they were small and vulnerable and wandering around in the middle of nowhere, God defended them against their enemies, and he gave them a law to order their lives for their flourishing. And so all of their system of religious sacrifices are meant to remind them that they have always lived and breathed by God's mercy. The sacrifices are meant to teach them to love mercy, to love the God of mercy, and to give that mercy to others just as freely and abundantly as God has given it to them. That's what it means that God desires mercy, not sacrifice. He's not saying do away with your religion, but he's saying your religion is meaningless if you make all these sacrifices and you forget that you are people of mercy. And this message is so important. It gets repeated so often throughout the Old Testament, and Jesus says it twice in Matthew's Gospel, the first times today in the calling of Matthew the tax collector. Now, a tax collector in those days, just as in ours, is part of the bureaucracy. So Matthew was sort of funding the pockets of the Roman Empire, which everybody hated. 
He would sit in a little customs booth beside the lake, and he would collect taxes on the goods that were coming in from the boats. Everybody hated these customs officials. The money that they collected propped up this system that was exploitative, and they were notorious for collecting more money than was due and pocketing the rich, or the rest and getting rich off of the profits. But when Jesus calls Matthew to follow him, he does it. He gets up out of his little booth, he walks away from all that money, he walks away from his job, and he follows Jesus. And later that night, we see Jesus in Matthew's house, and just by virtue of being a tax collector, Matthew's house already would have been considered unclean. There are certain ritual purity laws that just being a tax collector already breaks. And so being in his house was unclean, and worse than that, Jesus is reclining at the table with all of Matthew's friends, these tax collectors and sinners, unclean people who don't observe the Jewish rules. And in the ancient world, eating together meant a lot more than it does for us now. It wasn't just a thing you do when you're hungry. It was this clear sign that you identified with the people around the table, saying, I'm with them. So it was scandalous for this Jewish rabbi to be in an unclean place, reclining at table, sharing a meal with these unclean people. And so we can see why the religious leaders are confused and angry, because Jesus makes it look like their religious rules don't matter. And they ask Jesus' disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? It's worth asking ourselves that. Why does Jesus do that? And Jesus responds to them with the words of Hosea, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And to use the message again, I love the way Eugene Peterson puts that last line. He says, I'm here to invite outsiders, not coddle insiders. And the idea here is not, of course, that righteousness itself is bad. That's where we're trying to go. Just like religious sacrifices aren't bad. In fact, a few chapters earlier in Matthew, Jesus had said to the people, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is pro-righteousness. But the idea here is that the kind of righteousness that Jesus is after is about something other than keeping the rules perfectly, behaving correctly, and checking the boxes. Once again, it's about mercy. Jesus is calling a people who need mercy and who know it. People who recognize God's merciful invitation to the table and who respond to that with joy, with following, instead of keeping an eye on the door and asking, who let that guy in and why is she here? God is merciful, and in his mercy, God wants sinners at his table. God is there opening the invitation to outsiders, not coddling insiders. And the thing we have to keep in mind is that in this story, we are probably the insiders. We are religious people. We are sitting in a school cafeteria doing church on a Sunday when we could be sleeping or getting brunch or doing a million other things. 
And that's good. This is good. I'm glad you're here. But it's only good so long as it keeps us dependent on and reminded of the mercy of God. Reminds us that we were made and formed and called in mercy, and we were made to extend that mercy. And it can be really easy to let the things we say and do here actually kind of keep God at a respectable distance and keep us in control. It's easy for our lives to become stale and tame and self-righteous. The longer we live like that, the harder it gets to remember God, to remember the God of mercy, much less to love that God with our whole heart and soul and mind and strength, to love our neighbors as ourselves, to seek first God's kingdom and all the other things that Jesus taught us. We can forget what it means to live by mercy. And so we need to be hewn by the prophets. We need to be cut to the quick. We need to be woken up. We need to hear the words of Jesus the prophet, quoting Hosea the prophet, saying, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. But the good news for us is that Jesus is not only a prophet. Jesus is God. Jesus is the mercy of God in human flesh, and God's mercy in Jesus is so wide and so deep and so big It goes all the way to death, the perfect fulfillment of that whole religious system of sacrifices. And so now everyone, because of the mercy in Jesus, everyone, whether they deserve it or not, tax collectors and sinners, outsiders and insiders, everyone who asks for that mercy gets it, overflowing and abundantly forever. Jesus is calling this community of people who need mercy and who know it. People who are humble enough to ask for it and courageous enough to live by it. And I pray we would be that kind of community. And I think based on what was shared on Pentecost, and what I hear when I pray with you and when I talk with you, I think God is moving us toward that kind of mercy. He's stirring in us. So let's see what seeds are set aflame and take root in this season of ordinary time. I'm going to close with one of my favorite prayers from our prayer book. And uh, if you pray at midday prayer with us, then I might have leaned on this one a time or two. Back at the back of the prayer book, there are a bunch of lovely occasional prayers, which we use very occasionally. But this prayer is actually a prayer for hewing. So... Let's pray. Lord Jesus, Master Carpenter of Nazareth, on the cross through wooden nails, you wrought our full salvation. Wield well your tools in this your workshop, that we who come to you rough-hewn may be fashioned into a truer beauty by your hand, who with the Father and the Holy Spirit live and reign one God, world without end. Amen.